Well, how many of you know that in life, great things take time? You know, think of the greatest things in, in your life. They take time. Challenge is, though, we live in a fast food, quick hit culture, don't we? You know, we, we want things to come fast. We want things to, to be a quick snap. It, but yet, isn't life less fast food and more like a brisket smoking for like 12 hours, right? And all those juices are just flowing. The rub is sinking in. Meat's getting, I'm getting hungry. I don't know about you guys. You know, I think in life, though, we want quick fixes. We want things to snap of a finger. We want to understand something the first time we read it. We want to read a headline and understand it and not even have to read the last page. But life doesn't work that way. It's not the way that God designed us to work. You know, life is a lot more like watercolor. You guys are like, man, I didn't know he painted. I don't. <laughs> and this isn't coffee, by the way. I don't. But I'm going to try to today. Courtney took a watercolor class. And like I'm saying, most of us think that we can do it without ever trying it. So I did practice. But life really is like a watercolor painting. You know, there has to be a base layer or what they call in watercolor um, your, your, your pale base, right? It's like a pale wash. For you skiers, it's called a base layer, right? And so really, if you're going to paint anything, you got to have just a, a pale wash. you got to have a foundation to start from. And that's going to be the key. And I think for a lot of us, when you think about when you go to school, you go to college, you try to pursue a degree program, you, you, you've got to have a base. Otherwise, you're not going to understand. But then you get into the real world and you realize, wow, I actually don't know a whole lot yet, right? Have you been there? I think we all have. Or as a mom or a dad, you welcome a little one at home, and next thing you know, you've read all the books on parenting. And then you get that little cutie at home, and you're like, wow, this is way harder than I thought it was going to be. And I think we have to start with a base. We have to start with a, a pale wash, just an understanding of, of where we are in life. So bear with me here. Let me get this little piece added. And so as we, as we add this, I want you to think about your life. And, and you, I want you to think about how God moves in our lives. And I want you to think about your faith. You know, we've been in a series called The Greater Story for over a year now. And the idea in this series is to help us walk through the teachings of God's story so we can begin to understand. Because if we start looking at the world from where we are today, we're going to see all kinds of things that don't make sense. How can we live in a broken world with so much sin? How could a good God who created everything good, allow shootings in schools. And we're like, man, I just don't understand. And we start to make judgments. We start to have opinions on things. And we start to wonder, well, maybe God isn't good. And this is one of the reasons I wanted us to walk through, we wanted to walk through the series. Because we have to understand that the first thing God does is he gives us the base layer, right? It's not a very good base layer, but he gives us a base layer. And we have to let it dry. You know, we, again, microwave culture, we want to understand things the first time we read them, but we need to let it dry so we can understand. And as we allow it to dry, we do start to see that there is a picture that God is drawing for us. And with our faith, we, sometimes we, we walk in and we want to understand everything immediately. And some of you might be here today, and with your faith, you've been walking with Jesus a long time. But yet you just feel stale, you feel stagnant, you don't understand, you don't feel like you're growing. 
Some of you may be new to faith. You may have recently put your faith in Jesus and you're on fire and excited, but yet you're not really seeing change happen yet. And we wonder, well, God, why aren't you moving fast enough? And, and could it be that we just haven't let the pale wash dry? That we need to see that God builds us a foundation. And so that's why in this series, we're walking through the journey from Genesis to Revelation. And, you know, God is, is showing us in Genesis that he, he, he laid a foundation, that the, the world is, is created good, that God is good, that God creates everything with purpose and meaning. The world broke because of sin, because our grandparents in the garden decided they wanted to be more like God than to listen to what he had to say. And when we can understand that there's a foundation that God is building on, we can begin to see the picture come more clear. We kicked off a series a few weeks ago called King of Kings, and we're walking through the last week of Jesus' life towards the cross. We've seen Jesus on Palm Sunday do the triumphal entry into um, Jerusalem. We've seen Jesus flip tables to try to wake up and get attention of the self-righteous. Last week, we saw Jesus get arrested. You know, Ron walked us through um, the, the story of Jesus getting arrested and going on trial and getting slapped and punched and spit on. And we're thinking, what is going on? God, why would you allow this to happen? This is your son. This is the son of God. This is the story that we were all created to understand. And, and yet, why is this occurring? We saw Peter and, and John, really, the only ones that followed Jesus in. All the rest of the disciples took off. John and Peter go in to watch Jesus get tried, and Peter denies Jesus three times, and he runs away and weeps. And we see Jesus is led off. And we're like, why is this happening? But see, there's another layer to the, the, the painting that I think we can't miss. Because we, we've got our foundation. But what I think God wants us to see as we look at what's happening at the end of Jesus' life is that God is adding a layer. That he's, he's putting another layer in that we need to be able to understand and we need to be able to see and we need to be able to recognize that it's not just a story for the enjoyment of reading. It's a story for us to help us understand our lives. That God is drawing us into something bigger than ourselves. But if we don't understand the reason that Jesus was arrested and we don't understand the reason that Jesus went to the cross, we're never going to see these pictures come in to being this beautiful work of art that God is painting. So that's what I want to do today. We're going to see Jesus go to the cross. And it's going to not make sense. And we're going to wonder, God, why did you allow this to happen? But we have to begin to see that Jesus is adding more and more layers to this painting that he's inviting us into. So this morning, I want us to, to pick up where Ron left off last week. If you have your Bibles open to Matthew 27, let's grab those. And I want us to see Jesus going before Pilate. And this is a tough section. If kids in the room, you guys, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything. If you're in the room and you're, and you're wondering, like, this is really scary stuff. I don't know if my mom and dad would let me watch this TV show at home. It's because the Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything. God gives us his word, and, he, you know, it's not a Sunday school lesson, guys. This is, this is going uh, to give us some, some really grotesque things. But I think it shows more the validity and why we can trust what God says, because he doesn't 
overlook anything. He gives us the full truth here. So I want you to read this. Jesus is, is falsely accused. He's condemned to death by the high priest and the Pharisees, and then he gets led to Pilate. Pilate's the Roman governor of Judea. Notice this, Matthew chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now look at verse 15. It says, now at the feast, so this is the, the Passover feast, right? This is, the, this is the, the feast of unleavened bread. The Passover had just happened uh, two nights before, uh, or the, the night before. Um, at, the feast, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd one prisoner whom they wanted. And so uh, Pilate interviews Jesus. He, he examines Jesus. He's like, I don't see any reason why we should put him to death. And the Jews say, no, no, he, he is a blasphemer. He thinks he's the son of God. He says he's the Messiah. Our law says he must die, but we can't actually put him to death. We want you to. And so Pilate says, I see nothing wrong with this. I'm going to release a prisoner to you. Who do you want me to release, Jesus? Or there was a revolutionary named Barabbas. And the crowd says, we want Barabbas. Now, you might understand, you might, you might wonder, didn't on Palm Sunday a week before, I know this is Palm Sunday, but we, we looked at it a few weeks ago. Didn't on Palm Sunday the people sing Hosanna, the, the song we just sang? Didn't they sing, Jesus, you're the king, you're here. And now they're yelling, crucify him? Like, could you imagine it? What, what a change. One, one week, people are saying that Jesus is the, is the Messiah. He's the new king. And the next week, you're yelling, crucify him? Most Bible scholars actually think that's not the same people. The crowd that said, Jesus is Hosanna, is not the crowd that is saying, crucify Jesus. That the chief priests and the, the Pharisees, they gathered up their supporters. They gathered up the people that already hated Jesus. And so they're going around the crowd and they're egging them on and they're, they're doing all these things. And so verse 22, notice, Pilate says, well, then what should I do with Jesus who's called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather than a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands. There's a little basin. He, he's like, his blood's on you. And the people are like, put his blood on us. It's just, it's unbelievable. It's blood, it's unbelievable. He said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Verse 26, then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I want you to miss what happens in verse 26 because Matthew just this is one word. He, Jesus is scourged. Or John says that Jesus is flogged. And when we hear that, it's like one word. We're like, oh, what does that mean? And if you've ever seen Passion of the Christ, the movie, with Jim Caviezel years ago, you, you, you've seen what it means. Scourging was just the worst. It's just one quick detail for the worst of all punishments. When I was in Israel in January, so this is um, the spot on the northwest part of the temple where that pillar stands where the fortress of Antonia would have stood. And this was where Pilate's residence would have been. This is where they would have tried Jesus in front of the crowd. And this is where Jesus would have been flogged. And I got a picture here of the weapon that they would use to flog. They would put, it's just, it's the worst, you know. And in those days, it would be chips of bone or metal or um, rock. And they would lash you on your back and it would grab your skin. And it's from saying, kids, this is serious. And so Jesus is undergoing the worst of all punishments. In just this one word that the gospel writers give us, scourged or flogged. 
It's the worst, the most inhumane type of punishment that could be done. So Jesus goes and he gets flogged and he's in anguish. Right? He's in anguish. And then we pick up in verse 27. It says this, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. So there's a huge group of guys in front of him. And they start to mock him. And they stripped him, humiliated him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twist the crown of thorns on his head. You guys have seen the crown of thorns. It's a big picture for this, se- this season we're in. And more, they crank it down on his skin. He starts to bleed. And then they start to spit on him. They took a reed and they struck him on the head with the crown of thorns. And verse 31, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes back on him and led him away to get crucified. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who came and taught everybody what it looks like to follow and yet, and he had healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, gave hearing to the deaf. And, 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 and here he's getting led away to slaughter like an animal. And if you're like me, when you, when you read this, you, you, you know, you're looking at the picture and you're going, this just doesn't make sense. Like, God, why did you allow this to happen? Like, it just doesn't make sense. Like, why would the Messiah, the Son of God, have to, to come and be treated like this terrible criminal? And I think it brings this big question that we have to answer as we start to think about this, is why did Jesus have to suffer? And to understand this, we have to get back to the story and the painting. We have to go back to the very beginning. Because we have to go back and see why we, God has added these layers of the painting for us to understand. Because we do see, we look back in Genesis 1 and we see that, that God did paint, make everything perfect, that man was living with God in perfect communion, but then the deception of the enemy to our grandparents, Adam and Eve, and they made the decision that they would rather know the difference between good and evil than trust God's definition, and sin entered the world and brokenness came. And from there, mankind just tried to fix the brokenness. Mankind, it didn't matter what it was, whether it was trying to create their own world, to build their own Tower of Babel, to to Israel, just trying to make for themselves their own king. The story over and over all ended with the same place, that we tried to fix what is broken, but we couldn't do it. And the brokenness that happened in the very beginning is the reason that we see the ugly in our society. And all of you see it. You saw it this week. In Nashville, you saw it last week with the tornadoes in Mississippi. You see it day in, day out with the way people treat each other and act. You guys at school, you guys in elementary school and junior high and high school, you guys see it, the way people talk to each other, the way they treat their teachers and their parents. There's brokenness all around us. And so that, that, that's one of, the, one of the realities that God is trying to help us to understand by laying us this foundation is to see that the world is so broken and it needs to be fixed and we can't fix it. I think one of the realities that we see is that we think we have these ideas to fix it, right? And so we, 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 as a society, should move forward, should work harder to try to fix it. But we think, and there was this line of thinking 100 years ago, and we're here, and it hasn't worked. Well, if we can just get better health care, if we can get better technology, if we can just get people better educations, then people inherently are good enough to work it out, and our societies will improve. And yet we're 100 years later, and it's just as bad. It just looks differently. It's, it's just as ugly. It just might be a little more polished than it used to be. And it's a reminder that no matter what we try, and should we do all those things? Yeah. 
We should improve technology. We should improve education. We should improve health care. We should do all these things, but we got to realize that, that we can't legislate the heart. So the politician in office is not going to be the one who fixes the problems. We need somebody bigger than us. And so there's this reality in life. There's just certain things that we can't do. There's certain things that you can't do. There's certain things I can't do, right? Like how many of you guys remember as a kid, there was that saying, if you put your mind to it, you can do anything. You guys remember that? I love that. It's a good saying. It like motivates kids, right? You know, I got three daughters. I love the idea that my daughters can be CEOs of companies and the president. I love that. But it's a reality. There's certain things we just can't do, right? Like, I'm never going to swing a golf club like Tiger Woods, right? Like, none of you are ever going to put a man on the moon unless you're Gene Shirley, right? Like, that's the, that's the only. Like, truth be told, none of you can cook wings like Joe Richardson, right? Like, there's just certain things we can't do, right? So you and I, we've got limitations, and the limitation is we can't fix the brokenness of this world, but Jesus can. And this is why. God paints this foundation, and then we meet Jesus. And we wonder, why do we need Jesus? Because he's showing us, he's helping us, the picture come in to, to be more clear, that the world was broken, but we needed Jesus to come and to show us what it looks like to live our lives and to teach us what it looks like to honor God and to show us what's right for us. Because truth be told, guys, when we choose what's right for us, we're going to choose wrong every time. It's because of this, the foundation that was cracked and was, was broken. So this greater story that we've been going through leads us to this cross that we're talking about today for this very reason to invite us in. And so I think here's one of the realities that God wants us to see is that Jesus came on a rescue mission to heal us from the brokenness of our sin. Why did we need Jesus? Because of the brokenness and the foundation. If you don't realize that, if you don't understand that, you're never going to understand why you need Jesus in your life. You're never going to understand why Jesus came. It's going to be just this fairy tale story that doesn't ever make sense to you. If you don't realize that sin has fractured and broken you and me and this society and this world and everybody who's ever been born, we need it to be fixed, and we couldn't do it any other way. 700 years before Jesus was born, a prophet named Isaiah wrote these words, and they didn't make sense. But we can look back on him now and see. Isaiah 53, 5 says that the suffering servant would come for God and he would be pierced for our transgressions and he would be crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. No. Here's the thing. When we think about sin... When we think about the brokenness around us and we read this verse, we like to think to ourselves, well, hold on a second. The sin in my life isn't really that bad, is it? That someone would have to come and suffer for me? Like, you might look at your life and go, you know, I, I'm not perfect. None of us are. It's a human condition. But at least I'm not as bad as this person, right? Like, you might not even say it, but you have that thought. Let's be honest. How many of us have had that thought? Yeah, I'm a little messy, but I'm not as messy as this person. Oh, that person needed Jesus to die for them, but I, I don't. But see, again, if we, when we have these thoughts, we miss the big picture. We miss what Jesus is saying for this. The idea of Jesus suffering is showing us how ugly sin is. Why did Jesus have to suffer? To show you how bad sin is. To, show you, to help you realize that if somebody was, was going to die or suffer for you, then that means that 
There's some pretty ugly stuff happening in our hearts, even if we don't see it. You may not be robbing banks, but you might be robbing other people with your hurtful words, right? Like, you might not be lying to your wife or your husband, but you're probably constantly lying to yourself. Because who lies to, the, to us more than us? So there, there, this, this is reality that because of sin, every one of us are broken. And we have sin running through our veins, and we needed Jesus to come and to fix what was broken. And this is why Jesus was here. And so we see Jesus, he's been beaten, he's been flogged, he's been just humiliated. And now we see that Jesus had one more thing to do. Notice here, look back at verse 32 of Matthew 27. It says, and as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. So Jesus is so hurt that they asked somebody else to help carry his cross. The place that they took him to, Matthew tells us, was verse 33. They came to a place called Golgotha. Somebody say Golgotha. Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Here's a picture. Um, There's two sites that they think it could be in Israel, and we went to both of them. One of them's got a really big church on them. And then in the late 1800s, they found what they call the garden tomb. And so this is um, the place where they think that could be where Jesus was crucified. If you look to the right, you can kind of see some, a couple holes. Well, at one point in time, there was a rock that kind of resembled the bridge of a nose. Uh, but it still looks kind of like a skull, doesn't it? Just kind of see the skull in the picture. Um, so you think that this would have been the site, potentially, that Jesus would have been. They don't know for sure, but that Jesus would have been crucified. And what's interesting is this was right outside the city gate on the road to Damascus. And so Damascus was a big city. A lot of people who would be coming to Jerusalem for the festivals would walk right by this site on the way to the gate. And it would basically be Rome's way of saying, don't mess with us. Right? If you're a criminal in, in Israel and you get charged to die, you're going to get crucified on the road where everybody's going to be walking by. It's another way to humiliate you and another way for Rome to flex and demonstrate their power. And if you guys have been in church for a while, you, you guys have heard people talk about crucifixion, how terrible it was. You know, they would lay you down on the ground on the top post. They, you'd carry the top post in, they'd have the bottom post there, then they'd nail it together. They'd lay you down and they'd put nails in your wrists, nails in your ankles, and then they would lift you up and then drop you in a hole, like a fence post, right? Just imagine the jolt. And so this is Jesus. Again, this is the Son of God, the one who preached love, God's love, who preached about following. He, here he is. He's dropped in this hole now, and he's standing up next to two others. And notice what verse 35 says. It says, and then when they had crucified him, so Jesus isn't dead yet. He's just on. He's been crucified. He's on the cross. And, you know, these it was such a horrible torture, you know, you would slump down and you couldn't breathe, and so you'd have to push up with your ankles against that nail that was driven through the joint into the wood to try to hold yourself up to breathe. It was just, it was horrible. And verse 37, and over his head they put a charge to him which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And so everybody who walked by on the way to the feast saw this inscription over Jesus' head. And verse 38 says there were two robbers that were next to him, one on each side, two thieves, and they, those who passed by were deriding him, wagging their heads, you know, and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. I mean, he's just getting mocked, right? Just being utterly mocked. It's horrible. And, and I don't know about you, but I read this and I'm like, man, this is unbelievable. 
I mean, this is just utterly unbelievable. Here's the Son of God. He's nailed to a cross, and he's being mocked by the very people he's there to save. You know, it's just really unbelievable to think about. And again, it is adding one of the most important layers to the painting. See, we, we see that God gives us this foundation where he says that the world is broken. I made everything good, but sin broke it. And then we see the picture become clear that God needed to do something for us, so he sent Jesus here for us to be our king. But what we didn't understand was that God was telling us that we didn't just need a king. We needed a king to come and take our place. That because of the brokenness of the world, we actually don't have the ability to fix it on our own, as we've said. And so we needed Jesus to come and fix it for us. And as we see this and as we understand this and as we realize the impact of sin and the brokenness around us, we start to realize that, wow, that actually, that makes sense. That we needed someone who was holy and perfect and, and not us to come and to pay the penalty for us. See, friends, this is why Jesus is on the cross. But if we don't, if we don't ever get here, we, never, we don't see it. That makes sense? So we, we don't understand. Why, why did I need Jesus to die for me? Well, because Jesus was the holy, perfect son of God who lived a sinless life, who stepped out of heaven for us and came here. And if you guys over there, you guys aren't getting to see it. And it's built on this foundation of the fact that God made everything good, but sin broke it. And we start to get this. We start to make sense. And we start to wonder, like, okay, so Jesus had to die. Roman... Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says this, that all wages of sin are, are death. And so it's this idea that sin had a price. And if, if you read the story as we've been reading it, you start to see that because sin was broken, God created a people in Israel. And he gave them this Old Testament law, which seems archaic to us. But that Old Testament law would tell us about sacrifice and the, the day of atonement and the Lamb of God and all these things. And that we, 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 we don't really get it at the time, but it's pointing forward to the fact that Jesus would come and be the Lamb of God. That sin was so bad that someone would actually have to come and die for it. So this is what theologians call the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Somebody say substitutionary. Somebody say atonement. Substitutionary atonement. It's the process by which somebody removes the obstacle to their reconciliation with God. See, Jesus came not just to show us how to live, not just to tell us what's best for our lives, but to also be our substitute on the cross, to trade places with us. Notice how he did it. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. So the way the calendar worked, the way the clock worked in Israel at that time was 6 a.m. was the first hour. So it's noon. So it's noon here. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land to the ninth hour. From noon to 3 p.m., it goes dark. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And that means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is the moment that Jesus passed. John says in verse 30, I love this, notice this. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It's on the cross. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was finished? Like, what, what was it that Jesus is saying is finished? 
Well, it's God's divine plan to mend the brokenness of sin in us and the world. So I think that's what God is saying. Jesus traded places with us so we could stand in as our substitute. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you think about that, that the all-holy God who spoke the universe into existence loves humanity and his people so much that he would step in and trade places for us. And when you see that, it begins to come in more in the frame. You begin to see how real this is. This isn't some mountain that's miles and miles away. This is a foothill that's close. That's right before you. That's inviting you in. And, and I think it helps to, us to, to see the, the heart of God when we see the cross of Christ. When we were on vacation recently, I came across this billboard. It says that Jesus is the answer to all your problems. Now, this the, the, the skeptic in me, when I see these, I always try to imagine how people think when they see these kind of signs. I think most people scoff at it. Like, yeah, right. How's Jesus going to fix my marriage? How's Jesus going to fix my financial issues? How's Jesus going to fix all the problems in this world? And we kind of scoff at it. And even as Christians, I think we sometimes scoff at it because we think, well, I've been living this life of faith for a long time. My life is still a mess, right? But, but I just wanted to lean into this for a second. I, I think if you look at all the religions of the world, every religion of the world is trying to solve the problem. How do we get right with God and fix what's broke? And so you look at Islam, rule-keeping. You look at Hinduism, rule-keeping. You look at Buddhism, rule-keeping. Right? It's all about trying to find this, this right combination. But that's what makes Christianity so different because Christianity is it's not about rule-keeping. It's about a relationship. It's not about what you do, but it's about who's you are. Now, sometimes as Christians, we do a really bad job understanding this. And so what we do is we build in rules. Well, you got to go to, you got to go to church or you got to give this money or you got to be, take this thing or do this, that, and the other. But that's not anything that Jesus says about this. Jesus tells us what's best for us, but Jesus doesn't say anything about us fixing the brokenness on our own by keeping rules. Instead, Jesus and the gospels tell us that Jesus came to take our place to be our substitute, to be our substitutionary atonement. And when we do that, it's Jesus' righteousness that becomes ours. So this is nothing the Bible scholars talk about. It's, it's called um, the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Somebody say imputed. Righteousness. So it's the doctrine of imputed righteousness. So it's, here's the idea. Jesus pays off our debt. As Jesus pays off our debt, he transfers his righteousness to us. Does that make sense? So imagine, I wake up this week and I realize that finally the light bulb goes off and I realize, wow, I'm in a really bad financial situation. I realize I'm $10 million in debt, right? So I think, what am I going to do? So I go sell my guitars, my baseball cards, my shoes, all that stuff, and then I realize I'm $9,999,900 in debt. So I go to the bank, and I walk in, and I'm like, I talk to my banker, and I'm like, man... I'm in bad shape. I need you to help me pay this debt off. And he's like, for one, you don't make enough money to pay off $10 million. Like, you're going to be in trouble. But don't worry about it. Because there was a guy that came in here earlier that had your account number and your name, and he actually paid off your debt and put another $10 million in your bank account. How would you feel if that happened to you? Would you just, like, go home, right? Like, oh, cool, right? Eeyore? Heck no. Like, I probably would run through the glass door, right? <laughs> and I got enough money to pay for the ER visit. Right? You're going to celebrate. 
I think as Christians, sometimes we're like, oh, Jesus died for us, and he imputed us his righteousness, and we're like, oh, cool. Yeah. Let's go watch the game, right? Let's go to lunch. Thanks, Jesus. Like, we don't realize how big this is. Like, you had a sin debt so big, you could never pay it. Your sin debt required sacrifice, and Jesus stood in as our substitute, and he took our debt, and he gave us his righteousness. And you know what that means, guys? This is ridiculous. I'm just, I, please understand how ridiculous this is. When God saw you before Jesus, before you said yes to Jesus, God saw your sin. And after you say yes to Jesus, and you literally accept his free gift, do you know what God sees? God sees you through the blood of Jesus. He sees you as redeemed, as forgiven, as justified, as saved, as rescued, as set free, as the son and the daughter of God that you were meant to be. You didn't have to work for it. You didn't have to try to live hard and better and climb the ladder, do a bunch of stuff. What Jesus says is, just believe. Say yes to me and accept this free gift. And this righteousness is yours. Is that ridiculous or what? If you haven't made that decision, I can't, there's not a bigger decision to make to say yes to Jesus, to thank him for giving us all of that he's given us. And he'll begin to change your life. And you'll begin to see how the picture comes into frame. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He says this. He says, for our sake, for your sake, for my sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of Jesus' righteousness, it's been given to you. Notice what John Piper says. He says, when we believe in Jesus, I am united to Christ. So when you say yes to Jesus, you are brought into Christ. The Holy Spirit begins to live inside of you. You are now in Christ. And so when you are in Christ, John says, therefore, what he did and achieved becomes mine. By this union through faith alone, his righteous life is imputed to me. What Christ achieved is counted as mine. And this is why we call the gospel good news. Because it's good news for people who are lost and broken and far from God. And God has come and saved and redeemed us and justified us so that we can live in him. Is that good news? Yeah. It's really good news. It's the best of news. Now, there might be somebody in the room who's going, well, how do I know? How can I be sure? Because I sure feel like i got to do all these things. There's no way that God is going to love me because of my mess. Or I've done too many stupid things and hurt too many people and carry around too much guilt. Why would God allow me? He might allow that other person over there, but why would he allow me? And that's why Luke 23 is so powerful. I want to close with this. Luke tells us that right before Jesus takes his last breath, he's hanging on the cross, and he's got a thief on his right and a thief on his left. Look, look here at verse 39, and it says this. that one of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not to Christ? Save yourself and us. So he's, he's, he's coming down on Jesus. And the, one, the guy on the other side rebuked him, saying, Come on, man. Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. And so the, the thief is like, dude, like you and I got caught. You and I, we know we deserve death. We know we deserve to be here because we're thieves and robbers and bad dudes. 
not this guy, because this is, this is the guy we heard about. This is the Messiah. This is the one. And then notice this, verse 42. This is so good. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice that there, right there. That's that faith. You see that? You see the faith? He's not like, hey, Jesus, while I'm here, what do I need to do? I can't go to church. I can't read my Bible. I can't give any money. I can't get baptized. I can't take communion. I can't do anything. But he says, Jesus, you're the son of God. And when you go into your kingdom, will you remember me? That's faith. He transferred his faith into Jesus at this point. And what did Jesus say? Notice what he says. He said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me. Where? In paradise. What's paradise? Heaven. Glory. This man, this, this thief, Jesus saved him, and not because of he didn't earn God's favor, not because he lived a good, holy life, not because he worked really hard to prove his worth or his value. He believed in Jesus, and he ended up in paradise, not because of himself, but because the man on the middle cross said he could go. See, I don't know what you're going on through right now in your life or what struggles you're walking through or what doubts you're facing, but know this, Jesus loves you so much that he came in and stepped in to make the picture make sense. And he came in and he went to the cross to help you see the story, to find yourself in the story that you need him because we can't fix it on our own. That he went to the cross and gave his life and died for us so that we could actually have life. And he offers to you the greatest gift of all, forgiveness. And it's a free gift. All we have to do is accept it. All we have to do is to say yes. See, some of you in this room today, it's, it's time that we get real with our sin. It's time that we realize that God, it, it's telling us a story that the world has been broken because of sin and that you aren't any different than anybody else. And we got to just come to terms with that and realize that, yeah, we, we do. Sin is ugly and broken and we can't fix it on our own. We need Jesus to fix it for us. So I think there's others in the room today. It's time for us to repent. It's time for us to finally say, okay, God, your way is the right way. Because every time I try to go my way, it doesn't work. Every time I try to do my thing and fix the problem, I can't. It just gets worse. So God, I repent. I turn from thinking my way is best and I turn to you. There's other people in this room. It's, it's time to accept a free gift. It's time to say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. And it, if that's you and you want to talk today, Darren and I and Ron and Pete, and we're here. We'd love to, to pray with you, meet you in the corner and just talk what it looks like to follow Jesus, to say yes. You don't have to do anything other than accept that free gift. And for some of you, it's time to stop letting your sin weigh you down. It's time to stop carrying around that guilt of the sin that you experience and that you feel. It's time for you guys to let that go and be a part of your past. Do you know why? Because Jesus came. and went to the cross for you. And now you can look back at that cross and you say, praise God that I'm not who I once was. And I may be not who I want to be just yet, but I'm saved and forgiven and redeemed because of what Jesus did for me on Calvary that day.
I encourage you to make that choice. Would you pray with me?